and that's what the gospel should do. I mean, on the one hand, we, we certainly should care about truth, and we sh- certainly should want to have clear, I think it's an act of love to people to just be clear in our yeah. theology. But if that theology doesn't lead us to love people deeply and sincerely and to apologize when we're wrong and to be humble and to have a gracious heart toward others and to be ironic, then uh, that's a major problem because those things themselves are uh, part of what Scripture calls us toward. Hey friends, welcome to In the Room, episode number 80. My name is Ryan Hughley, and I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah, and the author of Eight Hours or Less, Writing Faithful Sermons Faster. Today I'm talking with my new friend, Gavin Ortland. He's written a great new book called Finding the Right Hills to Die on, The Case for Theological Triage. One of the things that uh, is the most sad, and I think heartbreaking to God so much of the time, is the extent to which we as followers of Jesus are willing to fight and divide over theological issues. Now, don't get me wrong. Some things are big enough issues that we should be willing to stand and to fight for these things that are essential to our faith. But there are other things that might be uh, deeply held convictions that we have personally, but quite frankly, are not worth us fighting and dividing with other Christians over. The problem is it can be very hard to know how to think about which ones should fall into which category. So to that end, I'm very thankful for Gavin's new book because he gives us such clear categories to be able to think through. So it's my honor to invite you into the room for this important conversation with my new friend, Gavin Ortland. Well, Gavin, thank you so much for coming on in the room. I'm excited to have you and talk about your new book, Finding the Right Hills to Die On. And before we get to the book, I'd love to just talk more about you and uh, get to know your story. A lot of people might be familiar with your family name uh, as you and your brothers and your dad and have all written lots of books and um, been really involved in many helpful conversations in uh, the last few years. And so I, I would love to start by talking about one thing I find most intriguing about you and your story is the long line of ministry, like parents, grandparents, family you come from. And I think what I find curious about that as you, we so sadly often hear stories of children who grew up in ministry families, experienced some level of dysfunction or hurt as a result of that and walk away from God and the church. And that has not been the story in your family. So I would love to hear you talk a little bit about what do you think, like what has happened in your family that is different that so many of you have continued on in vocational ministry? I would say the word that comes to my mind when I think about my family is the word gratitude. Uh, I'm just very grateful. You know, um, when I think about my parents, they're some of my best friends. Um, and I, I just see them as people that have integrity. Uh, so, you know, no family is perfect. Every family does have some sure. dysfunctions. But when I think about my family, I, you know, we just had our fourth child in May. And my awesome. mom flew out and she was just here just serving you know, just helping us in so many ways. And I think about, you know, the way she's been throughout my life and it's been that she's such a servant. She's just has such godly character. So I don't have any really answer to this in terms of how that is done other than just, uh, you know, um, that that's the Lord's work in my parents' lives, I guess. And yeah. I just, I often think about, you know, my grandfather too is a great hero of mine. He was a pastor and mm-hmm. I often think about um, just 
hoping to kind of follow in the footsteps that others in my family have made. I don't need to do anything more than what they've done. I just want to be yeah. faithful to follow in their footsteps. So I just feel grateful. I don't really know how to explain that in, in a way as much as I just uh, am thankful to the Lord for that. Well, what would you say are some things that were characteristic of family life for you guys growing up? Like what were some rhythms or characteristics that were very normative for you guys when you think back on growing up in your home? What 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 are the things that stick out to you as being most normative for you guys? I think what I would say might be a little bit surprising in some ways because um, there wasn't like spiritual disciplines. It wasn't real intentional. It's not yeah. like we did family devotions or anything. Um, occasionally actually we would do like, you know, we'd have some prayer time or something, but it was never regular. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, I think I just have lots of memories of fun and just laughter. You know, uh, we had a ping pong table and we'd all, we'd, we'd go through stretches of time where every night after dinner, it was ping pong (laughs) and we just had fun. And I've heard other people say that, that having fun together, laughing together is, is actually really important, uh, especially in the younger years. Yeah. Um, but really all the time. So um, I, I would say sometimes it's easy when people think, okay, I want to have a godly legacy. Mm-hmm. I want to, you know, raise kids who follow Christ and that kind of thing. It's easy to think of the really serious spiritual disciplines. And yeah. I think those are important. And I do think we need to think about that. But um, it's also the case that, you know, if if Christ is just a natural part of your life, that stuff will fall into place. That will mm-hmm. happen. Um, but vacations, um, you know, uh, other, other little hobbies, jokes, those things are all really important and they make yeah. a difference in terms of just the long term and just having a healthy kind of culture in your family. Yeah, yeah definitely. I, I could see in a lot of pastoral homes where life is so serious. It feels so laborious that it is one of the things that kids end up reacting against in just wanting a little bit of normality or fun or something that doesn't feel quite so heavy. And your answer comes as an encouragement to me as a dad who's not always found the best rhythm for family worship. I just interviewed someone yesterday about a family worship book. And every time I do it with a little bit of dread, because I know I'm going to feel guilty about it. And it has been, I mean, I I think that that that's something we really strive for in our home. I, I was curious. So you have, there's, so there's four boys in your family, right? You have three brothers. There's actually uh, three boys. So I have two brothers and then I have a sister as well. We have a sister as well. And um, are all of you in vocational ministry? No. Uh, My oldest brother, Eric, teaches at a seminary. Okay. And then Krista is my sister. She lives in Wheaton, Illinois. Okay. um, She's a full-time mom. And then Dane uh, actually is just now transitioning into the pastorate. Yeah. But you've all all highly educated. You've all written. I was wondering what it's like being a part of a family that when you think about your dad and your grandfather, your mom, your grandmother, what's it like being a part of a family that has accomplished so much? You know, it may not feel that way to you, but the average person just looking at what your family has written alone on paper, was there ever, I know in a lot of families like that, there might be a sense of competition. Is there a healthy version of that? I mean, what's it been like being a part of a family that has been, that has achieved a lot? Well, I never felt any pressure growing up from my parents about ministry or even about like, you know, appearing obedient or something like that. I was uh, more so than my other siblings. I was a pastor's kid in the sense that when my dad transitioned into the pastorate Mm -hmm. from teaching, 
um, they were off at college and it didn't affect them right. as much, but I was in high school. So I was kind of the PK. So I yeah. um, had all, all that goes with that. Yeah. But one thing I appreciated about my parents is they never, um, they never put any pressure on us to live nearby them. Once we got older, they said, mm-hmm. go wherever God calls you. And they never put any pressure about ministry. I really never felt that. I know that might be surprising, but I never, but I struggled personally just with my own hesitation of, is my calling genuine? Hmm. Um, I was a freshman in college. I'd had a great youth group experience that really was when I started walking with Christ. I was working with that uh, youth ministry doing a summer internship. I was just falling in love with ministry and just thinking, this is what I want to give my life to. But then I had this huge hesitation of, but would it be genuine because so Hmm. many others in my family have done this? Yeah. And I had to really sort through that. And uh, I finally just realized uh, my family is not a reason to go into ministry. It's also not a reason not to go. Yeah. I just have to be faithful to what Christ is saying to me. And that made it so much clearer. And then, yeah. And then the years since then, I don't really think there has been any sense of competition or anything like that or any pressure. Honestly, it's just sort of fallen out this way. I mean, I, me and my oldest brother, Eric Skype a lot. We always love talking about C.S. Lewis and mm-hmm. our favorite TV shows and that kind of stuff. So we share our writing with each other. And then Dane's writing is so good. His book, Gentle and Lowly. I remember the first time I started reading through that, I was just thinking, yeah. wow, this is really going to help people. Um, so I'm always happy to just, and both of them are great writers. So I'm always happy to just, I don't know, try to encourage people to, awesome. to get their stuff. And there really hasn't been any sense of competition. Again, I don't know really how to explain that fully, but I, I've never felt that. That's awesome. Um, you talked about, uh, I can't remember if you just mentioned it or I know I read it in your book, but I know you went to covenant, uh, for, did you get, is that where you got your MDiv was covenant seminary? Okay. Mm -hmm. One thing I loved that you mentioned, there was a phrase that you used in the book that I would love to, to get your thoughts on when you were talking about your experience there, you talked about the covenant seminary ethos that you and your wife talked about, and that you described that as a combination of theological depth and relational warmth. And uh, I thought that was a very insightful observation. And it's something that is kind of like a unicorn and that I think it's very difficult to find. It's not common. And so I, I wondered what your uh, thoughts or convictions are on how, how does that happen? How does one capture that ethos and how do we find? Because I sense that in a lot of what I have seen from a distance uh, in your dad and you as brothers and in your family and the churches that you all lead, there seems to be a common thread of this theological depth and relational warmth. So how do you think, how does one go about intentionally pursuing building that kind of culture? Mm. Well, we definitely did experience that at at Covenant Seminary. Uh, My wife and I started off our marriage while we were both students there. Okay. Esther was getting the counseling degree and I was getting an MDiv. And it was just such a great place to start off our, our married life, the friendships that we made, and just the whole culture that we were involved in. I think sometimes people think of seminary as a spiritually dry time where mm-hmm. you're getting all this head knowledge and it doesn't affect your heart. And I, I, I think that can often be the case. But for us, it was just such a both and. And that was just covenant. It just had this culture where there was such kindness and such um, warmth. And I just agree with you that that's rare, you know, um, out here where I live in California, it Mm -hmm. seems like the polarization that's in our culture is even more intense. And it's so easy to find people who care about either 
theology and yeah. precision and categories or uh, relational skills and r- relational depth and warmth and love. And I don't have any great advice on how to pursue that, but uh, you know, a first step is just seeing the value of it. And I think, you know, being around other people or, or other cultures where you've seen, once you've seen that, once you've tasted it, it's hard to be satisfied with anything less. And we, from graduating at Covenant and moving on, always felt like, um, you know, this has given us a model to aim for. Um, we want, be, and that's what the gospel should do. I mean, on the one hand, we, we certainly should care about truth and we sh- certainly should want to have clear, I think it's an act of love to people to just be clear in our yeah. theology. But if that theology doesn't lead us to love people deeply and sincerely and to apologize when we're wrong and to be humble and to have a gracious heart toward others and to be ironic, then uh, that's a major problem because those things themselves are uh, part of what scripture calls us toward. Love and gentleness are themselves a part of the doctrines that we are to uphold. Right. So when, when people talk about, you know, fight for fight for truth, fight for theology, we need to remember part of that truth that we should fight for is love. Yeah, that's good. So, love without theology isn't just imperfect. It's, it's, uh, it's warped. It's not, it's not good theology. Yeah. Which is, and this is definitely a theme. And I think even more than a theme, the tone that really runs throughout your book, which is largely about navigating theological disagreement. I think on the, on the practical side, you provide a lot of counsel there. My first, like I grew up primarily in uh, I think my first church experience was Methodist, and uh, my mom after that was taking us to an Assemblies of God church on Sunday night, but she remarried when I was five, and um, he adopted me, and uh, he was Seventh-day Adventist when they first got married. So I had just this very kind of <laughs> confusing um, upbringing in those very early years, but then we largely settled into um charismatic churches. And I would describe my theological upbringing as largely pre-atheological. I just don't remember it really being a thing. And then I went to Trinity in Chicago for undergrad. And the first time I feel like I ever experienced this was in my first New Testament class. And it literally was like divide down the middle of the classroom and Calvinists sat on one side, (laughs) Arminians sat on the other and fought about which one was right the whole time. And I remember being confused by that because I'd never really experienced that. And I remember really not liking the tone of the Calvinists. (laughs) Those are like my two takeaways. So I've experienced this firsthand. And and, and as you wade into these waters, you use this phrase throughout the book that is theological triage. And I was wondering if you could just explain that uh, before we go too far into this. Okay. So this is a term drawn from a medical context where uh, a nurse or a doctor on the battlefield will triage injuries. And it's just a system of prioritization. So you're just wanting to deal with the main things first so that someone doesn't die while you're treating a minor injury. And uh, it's a a metaphor that Al Mohler, I think, first used and popularized Mm -hmm. for theology. It's just one way of getting at the fact that not every hill is a hill to die on. Some doctrines are more important than others. And it's trying to push things one step further than just a basic distinction between the gospel and everything else. Right. So certainly we want to make that distinction, but then the everything else has a lot in it. And right. some things in that category are more important than others. So we're just trying to think with a little more nuance about different categories for how yeah. to rank doctrines. 
Yeah. And to that, and you, you kind of talk about in the beginning of your book, these two ditches that we're prone to fall mm-hmm. in one being doctrinal sectarianism, and then the other one being doctrinal minimalism. And so I was wondering if you could just describe those two things. Okay. So the doctrinal minimalist mentality is one danger. And this is the person who's so fed up with uh, doctrine that divides. They just say, Hey, let's just love Jesus and feed the poor and, and help people and, uh, and not focus on the details and just minimize things down to a, a core. And that can, that tendency can exist to a greater or lesser extent, but there's lots of people. That's a common temptation, especially when sure. we're reacting against the feistiness we may have seen. The other mentality in the opposite way would be sectarianism, which is, uh, in, in the extreme, it would be a, a sort of fundamentalist mentality of, uh, dying on every hill, very feisty, uh, very mean spirited, and just anything where we're dividing unnecessarily. And again, that can be pushed to the extreme, but it can also exist in more subtle forms. Often, I think it is related to a gospel attitude where we're finding our identity in these second or third rank doctrines, and we feel right, and we want to defend that. And uh, there can be an unhealthy psychology that enters in there. So those are two dangers. And the start of the book is just trying to encourage people not uh, not to go in either extreme and just see that there's dangers in both directions. I mean, that's yeah. part of the battle with this issue is sometimes we're really sensitive to one of those dangers and we're not as sensitive to the other. Yeah. I mean, you talked about this a little bit, but, but what all do you think motivates these two things? So on the one hand, I mean, a lot of it, I, I, I both of them can be very reactionary for sure. I think I have been reactionary at times in both directions based on experience, I've, experiences that I've had. But is there anything that you think that is common at the emotional level that motivates a person in one of these two directions? Well, I, it's, it's tough to sort of speak with certainty about this, but I, I've wondered a lot about personality uh-huh. And how much that might play in if yeah, someone's a, a thinker on a Myers Briggs, yep. they might be more in the sectarian side versus a feeler. You know, uh, that that could be a, a tendency. I th- I certainly think experiences. You know, you you mentioned how it can be reactionary. Yeah. That's a big factor that I think happens when someone's had a bad experience yeah. in some way, and and they've seen how painful that can be. Um. And then I certainly think that just our overall attitude towards the gospel, our understanding of the gospel can play out in these things. Um, You know, the idea of regeneration in Psalm 119, there's, there's such a love for God's word. And so I think that um, when God has given us this new heart that loves his word, that does make us want to care about everything he's revealed. So at its best, the movement against the minimalism is coming from this heart that says, Lord, what you have said to us in your scripture is so important. Right. Your words are precious to me, just like Psalm 119 speaks about. And then in the, the sectarian direction, I do worry that oftentimes, and I've seen this in my own life at times, there can be a self-righteousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think it was John Newton who said this, I, I quote it in the book, that self-righteousness can feed upon doctrines as well as works. I thought was such an interesting idea and so worth thinking about. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think 
there are many, many Christians that don't have categories for, for the various doctrines that we hold to and study and believe, which is what's so helpful about your book. And so you kind of show this fourfold ranking in which these doctrines can fall into essential, urgent, important, and unimportant. And so I want people to read your book and I want them to have reason to, but just at 30,000 feet, talk to me about what, what an essential doctrine would be. Okay. And this is just one way of, of cashing out triage. Yeah. It's not like it's the only way to do it. But um, so an essential doctrine would be something that is, is within the parameters of orthodoxy, such that if it's denied, um, you're really not in, in Christianity anymore. So something yeah. like the Trinity would be an example of an essential doctrine. It's something that is theologically very important. It's very clearly taught in scripture and it is sort of a boundary marker for just what the gospel message is. Yeah. What about an urgent? So this like secondary. Okay. So second rank doctrines would be those where it, it's definitely not an orthodoxy issue. It doesn't make you a Christian, but it's really important. And it often plays out in a practical way for how the church functions. Okay. Such that if you have a disagreement about it, it's difficult to be a part of the same church. So baptism yeah. would be an example where uh, it's hard to do both ways on that. There yeah. are dual practice churches, and I address that a little bit in the book, but it's one of those things. So second rank doctrines often have to do with church practice. And it's, there's often just a practical difficulty at being a part of the same church while there are different views on it. Right. And so this third rank is important. What would you, I know that they're all important, but as a, as a category, what would you put into that and why? Okay. So third rank doctrines are those that they are relevant. They are important. They do matter. This is what makes them different from the fourth rank doctrines. Yeah. Um, but they're not important such that uh, Christians should divide over or, or move into different churches or that kind of thing. So in the book, I list as an example, the millennium. And mm -hmm. I know some disagree with me on this, but I yeah. try to make an argument for that, that if one person, so the millennium being in Revelation 20, this long sort of golden era that John prophesies about, um, if one person is a pre-millennialist and another person is a post-millennialist, um, I, I argue that, that they can still be a part of the same church. In fact, they could even possibly be pastors at the same church. It's yeah. not the kind of thing that has such practical consequence that it should disrupt unity. Yeah, that's good. I was, I was curious about this as I was reading through this as uh, I pastor in Salt Lake City, uh, which is a very unique cultural dynamic, obviously with Mormonism being so prevalent here. And, um, you know, one of the things that's very complex that a pastor said to me when I first moved here is one of the things that makes ministering here, especially to those who have, that have been very influenced by Mormonism is that we use all the same words, but we have a completely different dictionary. Mm. And, you know, one of the things that is true about Mormonism is they're not Trinitarian, obviously. And so as we have, um, as we have ministered to and had people come who either are LDS or have left the LDS church, there's, there's just a lot of confusion. Uh, and it's almost perpetuated by so much of our shared language that we mean totally different things by. But it, I was thinking about this as I was reading your book. I was wondering, can, can context ever inform in your mind where a doctrine falls or are there like really concrete categories in your mind? Cause like, so when I ministered in the South, it was very difficult. It seemed to me to relate with pastors where we were not on the same page about almost everything. It just was a much more 
complicated environment. Now coming here, there's this very much this spirit of, you know, less than 2% of our population will attend a Bible believing church on Sunday. So um, when you remove the LDS church from the study, which most don't, we are the least church city in America. As a result of that, there's very much this attitude here amongst pastors that is like, we don't really have time to be divided about very many things. We really need one another. So I was just wondering what you think about that as far as what role does context, the context that you are ministering and living in play with how you think about these categories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can really relate to your to what you're sharing about the difference between Salt Lake City and the South because yeah. I've I lived in Augusta, Georgia for many years and so you don't get much that. more south than that. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that was a shock for me going from Chicago suburbs to there. And yep. then from there, we lived in several different places. Our current place that we minister is in California and it's a town called Ojai, which is a very tough mission field uh, for several different reasons. Um, the, the cost of living affects the culture. It's becoming much, uh, very much kind of a Hollywood getaway type place. Okay. And it's just not a well-churched place. It's a very spiritually dark place. Mm-hmm. So in several different ways. And we have this pastor's fellowship, uh, several churches. There's really no large churches in Ojai, but there's several churches uh, that are really healthy, wonderful churches. We, we get together as pastors and it's the most wonderful non-competitive, encouraging time. It's just been such a blessing. And I think it'd be harder to have, I think part of what makes it so encouraging is the sense of we're all desperate to to reach Ojai and we need the encouragement because this is a tough mission field. So I would answer your question by saying, yes, I definitely think context affects how triage plays out. I don't think these categories are hard. In fact, the whole idea of triage is it's not a sort of theoretical uh, practice for seminary students. Um, though obviously in seminary, you can think about it, but it's really a practical exercise. It's just about how do we advance the kingdom of God in Mm -hmm. the most effective way possible? That's the driving heartbeat behind it. And so because it's a practical exercise and not just theory, you have to look at what, what are the real life consequences going to be for your doctrinal decisions? And so, yeah, I think, you know, yeah, if you're a, a church planter in London, you may value, you may do triage differently on like the doctrine of scripture and whether we use inerrant or infallible and that kind of stuff differently yeah. than if you're a seminary professor in the South and you're just thinking practically, uh, yeah. that will play out differently based upon your context. That's good. So, so when is it time to fight for doctrine? And, and maybe in addition to that, what advice do you have for how we do it? Because I think both of those are probably equally important questions. When do we need to take a hill or find it like what, what hills do we need to die on? And, and then what's the most Christian way to go about doing that? Mm. Okay. Well, I'll start this with just referencing what helped me the most in okay. writing this book. And that is thinking about Paul's attitude in the book of Galatians. Okay. Because this really helped me have a category for there is a time to fight because all his other letters, Paul starts off saying, I thank God for your faith, even for the Corinthians who are getting drunk during the Lord's Supper. You know, they have all kinds of issues. And yet um, Paul is still thankful for the good fruit that is being born there. Yeah. But Galatians could not be more intense. He just starts off rebuking them. Yeah. And he's just, it's like Martin Luther 
at the Diet of Worms saying, I, here I stand. He's yeah. just digging his heels in and saying, time out. We got to talk. We got a problem. And um, so that really helped me think about, okay, why is Paul like that? And it's because there is re- because the sheep are being hurt by wolves. Mm. He's mad be- because love gets angry uh, when bad doctrine hurts people. Yeah. So like, when should we do this? Well, uh, an example that comes to my mind is health and wealth teaching that rips off poor people. Yeah. Um, that, is, that should make us mad. It should make us indignant. We should be like Jesus, you know, when Jesus cleansed the temple, uh, he, he gets angry for a reason and, yeah. and love should get angry at times. And there's theology like that, that we should be willing to, to fight over. But I think your question about, you know, how we do that and that being just as important is so important because it's so easy for us to take a stand and it feels so courageous, but it's really coming from the flesh, not the mm-hmm. spirit. And so we've got to make sure that we're doing it with love. We're doing it from the right motive. It's how do you know if you're preaching in the power of the spirit or the power mm-hmm. of the flesh? And he said, oh, that's easy. I think this was Lloyd, Lloyd-Jones who said this. Um, he said, it, when you're preaching in the power of the flesh, you feel exalted and, and puffed up. When you're mm-hmm. preaching in the power of the spirit, you feel very small and very low. And I thought, and I think when we are, taking a stand and doing doctrinal fighting, we should make sure that we feel very low to the, low before the Lord. We should feel very small. We shouldn't feel like, oh, look at me, look how great I am. There yeah. should be a humility in our hearts and it's so easy to, to fight in the wrong way. Yeah, it's a good word. You know, I think one thing that's makes your book so timely is that it just seems at least, it feels more than ever before in my lifetime, we are living in such a divided cultural climate and unfortunately, the Christian church often feels like no exception to that. And one thing I appreciated in your book was you made a distinction between theological matters on the one hand and then cultural wisdom and political ones on the other. And I think one thing that's complicated right now is that there seems to be a lot of evangelicals that are losing the ability to distinguish between those two things at times. And I was wondering if you see that and you agree with that. Mm-hmm. Yes, certainly so. And and the, the polarization that's in our culture is so worrisome. I mean, I, I really am concerned. Uh, the way we get all of our information, many times from social media and cable news, and just we're in these little boxes and we're not listening to the other side, it's becoming easier to demonize the opposition. It's becoming easier to assume that the people over there aren't just wrong, they're actually evil. And that's why they're wrong. And so part, and and the sad thing is, I think that polarization is is so present in the church as well. And so I think part of what the gospel should call us towards is to be a force against that polarization. And so we've been thinking a lot, just some of the others on staff here at our church about how do we model that? How do we model and, and teach our people that you can actually have a conversation with someone that you disagree with and be respectful uh, in that conversation? Yeah. Um, so that, that whole area is so important. And, and then just teaching people, you know, it's it's very tough because sometimes as a pastor, when you do this, you can really uh, pay. You know, people can get angry. Yeah. People can leave your church. Um, but just as painful as it is, I actually think we're obligated to distinguish the gospel from politics yeah. and from other cultural issues that the gospel will speak to and have relevance for. And some of those, some of the issues that come up in those contexts are very important and we're not wanting to downplay them, but 
Um, nonetheless, there's a valid distinction between the gospel message that makes us Christians, that unites us to other Christians, and then various differences that come up in discipleship for how mm-hmm. we follow Jesus that honestly, godly Christians can differ on because they're a little more complicated. And making that distinction is hard for people. Yeah. But, but you know, one thing I've realized is a lot of our people, it's easy for us to amplify the noise, the, the voices of those who get angry with us as pastors and leave our churches and say we're cowards for, for not doing this or we're right. or whatever. But there's a lot of late people who just don't know any better. They've never, they've never been taught um, that there is such a thing as a Christian who doesn't hold to this view, whatever it might be. Right. They genuinely don't have categories yeah, for that. True. And so just that's something I've needed to remember at times. And therefore, they just need gentle, patient teaching. And I know not everyone listening is is a pastor or a teacher, but I'm just curious about this as you're talking. For you personally, as a pastor, how how do you choose when we're talking not the not these non-theological issues that are more cultural or political? How do you decide what you do speak into and what you don't? Do you have any sort of rubric by which, you know, like whether it's a political issue or a social issue, how do you decide like some, cause some pastors take it like they're, they're not going to speak to any of that. And some only speak about that. It seems like, so how do, how do you make that distinction in your mind? Mm. I call my dad. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> That's say, probably good. If you could just share his number, we'll all just call you dad. <laughs> Yeah. I, I have done that many times. Yeah. Dad, what would you do? You know, yeah. um, I will say all joking aside, following him on Twitter is a is genuinely uh, an education, I think, in how how to think and and speak into so many of these issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and he certainly speaks about politics and speaks mm-hmm. about issues of the day. Um, this is a tough one. I, I honestly don't have enough wisdom or experience to have like a well-rounded answer to this. I am okay. still learning about this, but the driving question, of course, we always want to go back to is what will advance the gospel best? Um, because my first calling is not to, uh, influence politics that might be downstream a little bit, but my first calling is to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So everything comes back to that. And I think there's times where we have to speak out. There are issues that social and, and political and cultural issues that we would be unfaithful to the gospel if we didn't talk about them. The scripture talks about them. So, you know, um, racism and abortion are two issues I've decided I'm going to talk about those things. Uh, it, It wouldn't be right. I wouldn't feel right in my conscience if I just never talked about them. I think it's part of discipleship to bring the gospel to bear on issues like that and many others as well. But then it's so tough. It's complicated. There's other political issues. And then the way we talk about them, Yeah. you know, so I would say if there's anything I've learned thus far, it's stick to the text of scripture, let that be your guide, mm-hmm. and then tread lightly when you start getting into something where it does concern your opinion more. Always be, in, be mindful that you're speaking from the authority of a minister of the gospel. So you want to minimize yourself as yeah. much as possible and let the scripture and the gospel be what really reverberates out from your ministry. Um, but how that plays out in every detail, gosh, uh, I feel like over a lifetime we'll be learning, yeah. learning about that. 
I will say that was still a much more wise and well-rounded answer than you give yourself credit for. That was okay, a good, that was good. a good answer. It was very helpful. Well, I mean, what, what advice do you have? I mean, it would be, I think in reading your book and talking to you today, I would feel so comfortable disagreeing with you about something. You have a very warm, charitable, thoughtful approach to the way that you communicate. Sadly, you are about one in a million, it feels like right now. So what advice do you have for people who are going to be engaging people who are much more hostile around, whether it be theological issues or these political and social issues right now, any practical advice that you have for how to engage people who are more hostile? Mm. One thing I've thought a great deal about and, and learned about myself is that I don't think social media is... I really want to say ever. Maybe there's an exception that yeah. one, but I don't think social media is ever the place to correct people. Okay. And maybe I was just I'm going to ask you about that. Yeah, I might be wrong. I mean, I, and I don't say that doesn't mean that you can never disagree with someone on social media. I, but, but in terms of the goal is to get someone to change their mind, yeah. it just seems to me that social media is extremely limited, especially Twitter, extremely yeah. limited at, at being that kind of tool. And that long-form communication in, in writing, or even better sometimes, face-to-face -face interactions mm -hmm. are much better. So when it comes to engaging hostile people, I think there's lots of people to simply avoid. Um, they are looking for a fight. Uh, there are people who, who build YouTube channels and social media presences just by, honestly, I think it's slander. Yeah. All they care about is tearing down other ministries. Yeah. And that really is uh, bad. And a lot of those people, I think the verses and the pastoral epistles about avoiding people it's good because they're divisive. I do think that applies. Um, but one thing that is helpful for me is uh, to when I'm interacting with someone who's hostile, and there's a lot more probably to say about this, but one thing that's helped me is just remembering that they have a soul and that heaven and hell are real and that um, I want to wish them well at that deepest level. I want this person to, if they are not a follower of Christ, I want them to come to know, to be reconciled to God. If they are a follower of Christ, I'm going to be with them in heaven forever. Mm. And so just pulling back from the particular situation and seeing the big picture. And then I have found that genuinely wishing well upon others is one of the most joyful experiences mm. to genuinely pray for the, the good of someone. And that doesn't mean that you don't pray for consequences for someone's behavior. But again, looking at their soul, wishing well on their soul and their eternal status, to it, it's it's almost impossible to wish uh, well-being and joy on someone else without feeling joy yourself. Yeah. Love, love is is such a a wonderful thing to experience. So if you can just get your heart in a state before interacting where you actually care for their well-being. Um, that can help the tone of the conversation a great deal. Yeah, that's good. You've got a, a chapter toward the end of the book about the importance of developing theological hu humility, practicing that. And I, I think oftentimes we think of humility um, only as a feeling that we feel toward other people. And so I was just wondering on, on the practical end, how does one go about, from your perspective, developing theological humility? Mm. One practical idea is reading in church history, because many of the people that you read are coming at things from such a different standpoint 
It's true. That uh, it can't help but humble you because you realize, wow, they just think so differently than, than I do. And we can't both be right about everything. And yeah. yet these are incredibly uh, smart and godly people. So uh, I found that to be very much true. Just reading like the church fathers on something, it just, uh, it helps you not assume that your way of thinking is sort of automatic and how everyone thinks. And that would also be true, I would say, for reading people from and interacting with people from other cultures and from other perspectives, even political views and other things, you know, uh, traveling, you know, people who have studied abroad often are, are more capable or have lived abroad in some yeah. way are often more capable of understanding uh, different ways, non-Western ways of looking at the world and that kind of thing. So just, I think it's really healthy to surround yourself with people who think differently, whether that yeah. be what you read, the books you read, the authors, or just your friends, that can be a really helpful exercise. And then just you know, the, the basic thing, I think, is when in 1 Corinthians 13, when it says we see darkly through a glass, um, asking our hearts, do we really believe that? Or is that just a theory? Like, technically, I see, mm -hmm. but really, I, I see. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or, yeah. or do we actually really believe? No, no. Yeah, I actually do only see part of the truth. I actually do have blind spots. And just remembering that is so useful. Another practical thing, listen to sermons of yours from a long time ago. <laughs> it's very, uh, very humbling. It's hard not yeah. to feel humbled when you do that. It is. Yeah. I've been saying lately, I'd like the first five years of my preaching back, just all of it. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, on the topic of pastoring, especially right now, we were even talking about this before we started recording. It seems like every pastor I talked to this year, when I ask how it's going, everybody mentions and uses the word complicated. It's just such a complicated time to lead. And uh, so what advice would you give to pastors, uh, just lead, just generally speaking, that are trying to lead through this season? Mm. Well, there's probably lots of kind of really specific practices or things that uh, if I had more time, I could kind of think of. But I'll just give the first answer yeah. that comes straight up to my heart. Perfect. And that is just to encourage pastors to give yourself some grace right now because this is an extremely brutal time and probably yeah. pastors are suffering more than they even may know I more agree. than they may even realize the burnout. We're learning new skills. We're facing new criticisms. It's extremely challenging to maintain unity right now. And uh, I saw somebody put up on Twitter a while back, surviving is the new thriving. That's right. And uh, I, I sort of feel like that right now. Like yeah. if, I would say to pastors, if you're surviving, hey, you are thriving. great job. <laughs> That's you right. are doing something right if you're yeah. still a pastor, because it is such a hard time. And I knew someone who was a great encourager. Now he's with the Lord. But he used to always just tell people, um, he used to talk about giving yourself grace which could be misunderstood, but I think what he meant by that is, you know, just as we give, sometimes we give other people grace, but we yeah. never give ourselves any grace. We never give ourselves a leash of like, hey, cut yourself some slack sometimes. And yeah. I would just say, um, because it's such a brutal time, it's more important than ever for pastors to take a day off and to treasure those words of encouragement that come and, and think about them more than that negative comment that they got. Right. And uh, find ways to refresh your soul and try to take a long-term perspective because this is a tough time. And um, unless we're, unless we take care of ourselves, we could be in trouble by the totally. end of this pandemic. Yeah. yeah. Well, to that end, I've been closing my conversations uh, this year 
with some rapid fire questions uh, that we just can pick up ideas from one another about how to do just that. So I'd love to ask you just a couple of these. So f- first answer that comes to your mind on, on most of these, but what's something simple that brings you joy right now? Mm. Wrestling my two-year-old, he'll be three in two days and uh, he loves to wrestle. He's extremely physical. If he, if I don't wrestle him, he'll just pick fights with his siblings. <laughs> That's how he just has to have physical contact. So my favorite thing before, probably my favorite part of each day is just to look forward to is that wrestling with him because his, he has no inhibition in his laughter. Yeah. He just, he's all in and it's that. so, it's so much fun. So That's playing, awesome. playing with kids is a lot of fun. What's something that you've read or listened to recently that inspires you? Um, Shane and Shane put out an album that's like a, a, a vintage. Vi- yes, vintage oh album, and I I love it because it's so nostalgic. You know all yeah. these songs from like ninth grade. You know, yeah. um, so I've been having that on in the background. Worship music in the background often encourages me, so I've been listening to that lately. Yeah, that's great. It's great. I actually think you're the second person that that might have been their answer. It's a great album. Mm. Uh, what's something that you're working on right now or thinking through that makes you feel alive? Mm. About, I know this one is, uh, I had to think about that last one, but this one I know right away. Um, I have just fallen in love with apologetics and just how how fun it is to think about how to respond to objections. And mm-hmm. it's just sort of a hobby for me to read read books like uh, Lawrence Krauss's book, A Universe from Nothing, and books by skeptics, like and then thinking about how to respond. So yeah. uh, I've been finding it a, a great deal of fun. And I actually started a YouTube channel. I saw that four days ago and I'm going to, the videos will be all about mainly about apologetics. Okay. And it's just been life giving and fun. I, I, I never anticipated that would become a project, yep. but it, it, you said makes me feel alive. It does. It, it gives me a sense of uh, purpose, especially as I have more time during the pandemic and it gives me something to focus on. I love that. We'll, we'll put a link up to that so people can find it as well. Uh, last question. What's your best piece of advice to the average person living through 2020? Mm. Well, uh, when I was going through a time of depression several years ago, um, someone gave me the advice about choosing hope and that hope can be a choice and that it's one of the most powerful choices to, you can make. And, uh, and other things like gratitude, there are things we can choose to feel and it's such a dark time and it's such a challenging time on so many different levels that I think it's an important time to choose hope and to uh, envision uh, in line with God's promises, not just arbitrarily, but um, but looking ahead and being more intentional to, I don't want to say look on the bright side because that sounds kind of cheesy, but being more intentional to envision a future that is in line with the promises we have in, in scripture that is hopeful. Uh-huh. And we, the great thing about the gospel is it always gives you hope. There's right. so much we don't know, but you we know we've got hope because we've got heaven yeah. And we've got the promise that God's kingdom will advance no matter what. So just choosing to dwell on hope, I think, yeah. is really important right now. I love that. Well, Gavin, I think uh, I just want to close by saying um, something that you've confirmed for me. I've noticed this with everyone with the last name Orland at this point. But the more that I press in and read 
what you write and hear what you have to say and the way that you have to say it, the more I feel like this is not just a pastor that I want to be like, but a man that I want to be like. And um, that's a really big deal. I, I, I feel like the older I get, actually, the harder it becomes to find other men that I look at and think, here's someone that has characteristics and values and a way about them that I would like to emulate and be around. And so I think probably the most authentic compliment I could pay you is that even just in this conversation and in reading through your book and as I followed you online, um, you've, you've really continued to live up to that. And so thank you for that. And thanks for taking time today. Thank you so much, Ryan. That means a lot. And I'm so glad to have the chance to talk today. Thank you. 